This is the CMS Colloquium Podcast, produced by the Comparative Media Studies Program at MIT. For more information about Comparative Media Studies or on the Colloquium series, visit us online at cms.mit.edu. excited to be presenting to you Tucker Eskew. Um, some of you know that I go from, from time to time to the Aspen Institute, uh, which is a really amazing space where people of different political backgrounds, uh, people in business, people in policy, journalists, academics, sit down around the table and talk about the pressing public policy issues of the day lower some of the partisanship uh, to try to find common solutions or at least common processes for thinking about the solution. And the first year I was there, I met Tucker and his wife, uh, and we were at a fairly fa- you know, fancy party in a nice house, and I was struggling to figure out how do I br- bridge between these divides, and up comes Harry Potter. We discovered that both he and his wife and my wife and I are hardcore fans of those books and discovered that maybe Harry Potter is one of the things that bridges across ideological divides and allows people to talk together through having a shared fantasy. And I think took an instant liking to Tucker and his wife and really have enjoyed knowing them and the chance to, to change, change ideas with people I don't normally hear. You know, the, the academic world can be an enormous bubble sometimes where we don't hear the full range of views that are out there. And so I'm excited to be presenting Tucker tonight uh, to you. I'll let him tell his own story in his own words. But uh, joining me in welcoming you to CMS Community. Thanks, Henry. Thank you all. I appreciate you coming out. I, uh, as a conservative here in Boston, uh, I am uh, honored. Uh, I would say I'm looking forward to our exchange said David to the lions, <laughs> said Harry to the Death Eaters, <laughs> said Sarah Palin to Tina Fey. <laughs> uh, but uh, since meeting Henry uh, at Aspen two, almost two years ago, uh, I've wanted to see him uh, in action. And uh, I just asked him if he had uh, done any film roles yet and have learned of his uh, uh, pending part in, in Star Trek, pending DVD release, apparently. But that's the kind of action uh, that we're, we're proud to see him in. But uh, since we're in a setting where um, I can't judge him in action as Dumbledore, which I understand he does, I just want to say that uh, I'm sure he's better than Michael Gambon, and maybe not quite up to Richard Harris's standards. I, I, I'm a Harris fan uh, in his carrying out of the role. But look, I, I'm going to reflect uh, briefly on my uh, career uh, in communications as it relates, I think, to some of the topics you're addressing. Take a few minutes to share some thoughts on partisanship and leadership, on statecraft and stagecraft, uh, and I think uh, reflect a bit on some of what I've absorbed in the last year and a half of knowing Henry, following uh, your work here at the at the center and, and the fine work all of you are doing and having uh, consumed uh, a fair amount of that, some in uh, dead tree form and uh, a good bit of it uh, online. And uh, I, I hope in our exchange after some remarks we'll be able to have uh, more give and take on the concepts you're studying and trying to apply. Uh, I might even um, 
get at one point to a few moments about the backstage activity at Saturday Night Live uh, during, during the campaign. Um, some of you may know I uh, served uh, last fall as a counselor to the governor of Alaska. Um, one particularly young uh, reporter who uh, is uh, among many writing books after that campaign asked me what it meant to do to be counselor. She said, what are your counseling sessions like with Governor <laughs> Palin? And I, the term didn't quite, she didn't quite have the role figured out, although many of us who went through the experience might have used a few counseling uh, ex uh, sessions. And I say that without uh, uh, bias or, or fear of contradiction. It was a tough campaign. Look, um, uh, I will reflect on that campaign. Uh, and hope on some of the taxonomy. I think that'd be the word that you use to uh, sort of organize uh, your work uh, in the realm of convergence culture and, and spreadable uh, media. And I have to say a shout out to my friend Sam Ford, who some of you know. I got to know Sam working together with him, and he is, uh, to the degree I do anything that hits the spot with any of you, it is uh, largely attributable to Sam's good help and advice uh, over the phone just before the birth of his child, so I really appreciate that. I'll start, uh, if I may, with a defense of partisanship here in Boston. Now, I'll make it a carefully uh, defined defense of partisanship. So partisanship, to my ear, uh, in politics is thrown back and forth so often it's a very hollow charge. There's always been partisanship in politics. What we need less of, in my view, is the knee-jerk, reflexive angry, personal uh, kind of partisanship. We've had partisanship from our founders uh, on down. And I think uh, moving forward uh, as a country and in this new era, in the Obama era, there's some opportunities that I'm, I'm hopeful about. I'll confess to having a hopefulness about some of those opportunities before and to see those fail. But uh, while I breathe, I hope is the motto of my home state, South Carolina. Um, so I think our country and our politics would benefit from a little less of that as Richard Harris, and, as Dumbledore, peers over my, my shoulder. I'd, I'd say I have to confess to having been in some very tough battles. Uh, uh, so when I condemn uh, some of the toughness in politics, I, I try to stand carefully in a square uh, uh, that I've carefully defined for myself. And if we want to have some give and take about that, it would be fine. I, I learned my politics at the knee, in effect, of a, a, a mentor, uh, someone who is vilified uh, in many quarters for his role in politics, a fellow South Carolinian named Lee Atwater. He was an extraordinary uh, political operative. Verified though he is, deified in some other quarters, and of course, as is so often the case, the truth lies uh, somewhere in between. But I learned a lot from Lee. He was no angel, but he was uh, my friend. One of those force of nature personalities that you really only come across a select number of in your life. He was wiry and hyperactive. If you want a sense of what he was like, I'll commend to you a movie made by a Bostonian. I got to know and really like a documentary filmmaker from here in Boston named Stephen Forbes. And Stephen's uh, movie, Boogeyman, uh, hasn't spread quite as much as he might like, or even I. I, I come down on the side of uh, believing it's generally fair. I think it's a little bit wrong about Lee on the questions of race. And as you'll see a little bit later, uh, Southerners are sometimes uh, 
uh, I, we think, at least, unfairly cast on the subject of race and sometimes uh, fairly uh, uh, castigated on the subject of race. Um, uh, I, I think what I did later in my career was get a little more policy focused, a little more governing based in how I approach politics, and that wasn't Lee's stock and trade. But Lee brought me into the Reagan operation just to breeze through a few quick things here, uh, and, and I certainly uh, learned from somewhat afar. Uh, I, I was not a, a senior player, but I was around a lot of amazing communicators. I was the first guy to run a war room in a campaign. Some of you might be political junkies might have seen the movie on the 92 campaign in Little Rock where the Clinton campaign ran its war room and they labeled it as such. In 1984 we didn't call it that. I had an office with four televisions, count them, four, and four VCRs. And we clipped newspapers, not like Control X, but with scissors and we cut and paste, not control V, onto sheets of paper which were run through a Xerox machine to spit out copies of news articles which were disseminated all through the headquarters. I was a media junkie. Atwater had figured this out about me and had the good sense to put me in the press office collecting, synthesizing, and distributing uh, information. I loved it. Oh, I was so happy. What a trip. What a great experience. And for which I'm always grateful to Lee Atwood. I had no idea there were jobs like that. I mean, I really didn't. We had no email. We didn't have fax machines. God, I'm old. <laughs> uh, but it was, you know, an amazing experience. So um, I think uh, uh, that that Outwater thing, I just string along real quickly, led me to work for a guy named Carol Campbell, who was governor of South Carolina. He's deceased now from Alzheimer's. God rest his soul. He had some uh, amazing qualities, some that are kind of akin to Bill Clinton's in the sense that uh, he was a very aggressive partisan. I mean, he really believed in, you know, the tough practice of politics. And like Clinton, he cared about the, the policies and he cared about uh, accomplishments. And you know, would really uh, generally hew a, a somewhat moderate course, certainly from a conservative standpoint, just as Clinton came from a, a more liberal one to a moderate uh, place. But uh, the thing I want to leave you with about, about him, aside many great qualities, he was tenacious. So if he got attacked, he either, at a minimum, we put up a shield, or uh, very often we went on a counterattack. He also had kind of come along with Lee Atwater, and so there's a brand of pretty tough-nosed politics in South Carolina, which uh, that brand has uh, its own reputation, which lives uh, to this day, and which had some uh, effect on me personally uh, in this last campaign that I'll touch on in just a little while. I would say, though, uh, raising a shield would be writing a letter to the editor. He was a big believer in that. We've got to get it on the record. Let's commit it to paper. It's a pre-internet era, but let's get it in that paper's archives that I said this, this, and this to counterattack their attack on me. I spent eight years as his press secretary from the first day he was in office to the last, and I needed a breather after that, and uh, took one for about six years and then got back into politics. Uh, the appeal of that governor from Texas at the time, I ask you to join me in the era of 1999, when uh, the uh, Clinton uh, polarized era where there was a demonization in politics of him. There was anger on the left and right about it. There was, uh, you know, it was a divided time. And, and, uh, and, and Bush came onto the scene pledging to change the tone.
it was extremely appealing to me uh, that someone who'd been a governor, I believed in governors, who was self-defined as a compassionate conservative. That sounded kind of like the way Campbell was. Campbell was no silver spooner. He grew up really hard, alcoholic parent, broken family. Uh, nobody ever laid an easy path for him, and it made him tougher and ultimately a better and more compassionate person. Bush obviously had a different life in terms of his upbringing, but had some of the same policy instincts that really did appeal to me, as well as a desire to change that tone in Washington. We all know ultimately sort of how that worked out, not so great. Uh, and, and the blame to go around on that. But the lesson of rejoining politics, coming back to the White House, so I served in the campaign there, I'll talk for a minute about that. Um, you know, you're reminded of how tough governing is. So we're looking at, and Henry's been looking at, and writing about along with a number of you, you know, civic affairs through the lens of spreadable media and this convergence culture. I, I think, you know, it's, it's worth noting just how tough an environment it is. Tough for the people who put themselves through it. So tough that I sometimes kind of jokingly say, you gotta be kind of defective to want to run for office. I mean, this is not about ideology. I'm just talking, what does it take within you to put yourself forward to be an office holder in this kind of culture? And I, I leave some of those questions unanswered. Just the asking of them is pretty important to do. I suppose I come down about where uh, political journalist David Broder and author Richard Ben Kramer have come down on this question. Yes, it is a brutal process, speaking particularly about the race or the, the process of running for the White House. It's a brutal process, but as Kramer wrote famously, have you got, quote, what it takes? What it takes is, he would, I don't believe, say a defect, but certainly a kind of drive, a will. Some would say will to power, you know, that is extraordinary. Um, and it has its way. I, you know, some people would say it's, uh, it's somewhat akin to uh, uh, what Churchill would say, you know, about democracy. You know, that there's really, uh, uh, it's, 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 uh, it's the worst possible way to choose a president except for all the others. You know, it's, uh, it's just not ideal. I, I'm not really convinced of all of that, but I'd start any discussion about changing the way we choose presidents, uh, uh, arguing that <clears throat> we don't want to limit uh, dialogue and debate and discussion, and I think some measures that would seek to reform American politics could have that effect. And isn't it interesting that uh, in the Obama era, there's much less talk about reduced campaign spending and tighter restrictions on campaign spending. To me, that's fine. Uh, regardless of ideology, uh, I, I would have come down that way five years ago, ten years ago, and today. It's notable that some of the voices uh, that support uh, President Obama on a whole host of questions have, have gone quiet and mute on the subject of campaign finance reform, and I suppose it's worth noting how well you know Barack Obama did as a fundraiser. Extraordinary. So, um, uh, that campaign, how crazy is this? We go to election day 2000 and bang, uh, you know, we end up in Florida. And I get sent by the governor at the time uh, as the first communicator, to what we'd call him in Bush world, to Florida for uh, the recount. What an incredibly insane front row seat on this, the hurly burly 
the new, uh, the new, new thing of American uh, politics, if I can borrow from Michael Lewis there. I mean, I, it, it was, it was, uh, you know, the, I sent myself to the home of the butterfly ballot, talking about uh, the recount in Florida in 2000, when many of you were pre-political, let's just say. But <laughs> I, I, I'll re re recap that whole experience uh, in short by noting that uh, uh, it was um, it was an incredibly intense period. There was it was a greater crush of media attention that I'd ever been in around, and even the subject of uh, of you know I was doing a lot of interviews. I was on TV a lot. I was around the press there in West Palm Beach, real ground zero for a lot of uh, the recount. We had moved to Austin just a few months before that for the fall campaign where my wife had had our first child. So I think that was in the back of my mind, that experience of having that first baby as I stood in uh, West Palm Beach and, you know, we're looking in through these windows from a courtyard into a room where these people are counting ballots by hand. And it's kind of unnerving. You know, the future of our democracy, our country standing in the world, so much hangs in the balance over individual judgments about how much a chad, a piece of paper was bulging or was pregnant or was hanging or, you know, it was just, a, it, was, it, was, it was kind of disheartening in a sense. But, but I, you know, you look in through these windows and there are all these cameras around, they're clicking away and there are people in there carefully carrying these ballots around the room and it hit me. This is just like the maternity ward at the hospital and man, that is one ugly baby. So... Uh, how intense an experience to be to be a communicator, a press guy, someone who lived in the world of words, now really having to also live in the world of the law. I, you know, often commented in, on, on the, the law and, and court decisions about the law. But here, the Supreme Court was was, or the courts of the land, really, before it got to the Supreme Court, were deciding the biggest political question in our democracy, and. Uh, you know, I had people mistake me for a lawyer. I was talking so much about the law and was wearing a tie in Florida. Uh, so you had to be a lawyer. Um, I stood down there and felt that it truly was a, a theater of the absurd, and yet I've wondered, Henry, just how absurd and intense it might have been had that happened in 2008 as opposed to 2000. And, you know, certainly we were in the Internet era of politics, the 1.0, if you will, and, and certainly there was a crush of global media. And I don't know that it would be different. It just feels somehow as though that intensity, that uh, the, 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 uh, uh, the, the ability of media to spread and messages to be uh, disseminated in that kind of environment would have altered the experience somehow. Um, look, uh, uh, I, I would quickly note, wrapping it up on President Bush and that era, uh, I, I, I would do right by my own role having worked in the White House and coming before an audience of very different political views from some of you and maybe the same from others. Uh, uh, I, I thought, um, as I talk about partisanship, I note that too many Republicans uh, complained about some very conservative things Bill Clinton did because Bill Clinton was doing them. 
and welfare reform is an idea that comes to mind. And I felt likewise that uh, complaints uh, about prescription drug uh, benefits being added to Medicare and education reform that recognized public education as a civil right for our most needy students. These were things that George Bush brought to the presidency and made him more moderate, and yet many Democrats did not in Washington uh, saw, saw fit to attack those things. I think we're in a, at a moment in time as, as a hopeful, optimistic person with the uh, election of President Obama for uh, hitting some of the reset. And I've, I've thought about this for the last uh, six, seven months or so, and I wouldn't say I'm more optimistic now than I was a few months ago. I, w- I was very optimistic after the election. Uh, I think... Um, Look, I've been saying to my fellow Republicans that a lot of us for eight years have complained that some Democrats and partisans in Washington would rather see the country fail if it meant that George Bush would be seen as failing. And it would be hypocritical and counterproductive and not politically helpful. And I think I mean those in declining order of importance. But Hypocritical is pretty bad. Decline, uh, not politically helpful matters to political operatives. But I think on that scale, it's the sort of thing that Republicans would do well, be well advised to avoid. And actually, despite the focus on Rush Limbaugh, who has famously said that, no, he wants Obama to fail. And other Republicans, myself being one of them, who've said, no, actually, we want our country to succeed. Doesn't always mean I want the Obama agenda to succeed. But I'm going to carefully say, no, I want him to succeed. And on my terms, on my definition, I admit that. I'm a partisan. I've got my own views. And and I'm expanding them widely enough to incorporate something that others would consider success. Because that's what a party that's on its heels and is in very bad shape has to do. It would be a little bit more uh, expansive. I think, uh, you know, I, I get a little irritated at how, how glowing the press coverage is. And then I remind myself, God, wouldn't it be great for us to have a culture where our president at least enjoyed some, you know, really uh, not fawning coverage. That's reserved for French political reporters. <laughs> you study that. But, 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 you know, and so I don't want him to fawn, but I, I think... Building up a little, uh, a bit of a heroic uh, thing around our president is not not all bad, in and of itself, not uh, for its own sake, but for the country's sake, and because we ought to give the some benefit of the doubt to people who put themselves through this ruler. Um, Republicans will, can, should oppose him on matters of principle, uh, and hope that his worst ideas fail. Uh, but uh, I, I liked what Kevin Hassett, a uh, conservative scholar, said. He said, the emergence of an honorable opposition would transform America for the better. I really do uh, agree with that. Um, zipping along, how I rate Barack Obama, it's too early to really say. I, it's political talent, an amazing personal story, uh, a, I think an ability for considered judgment that's good in a president. Uh, uh, I saw George Bush have some of those same qualities, and yet they were not communicated well, and sometimes it wasn't the case. I, so I admire it in, uh, in, in uh, Barack Obama, one of uh, Bill Clinton's closest uh, staffers in that White House, and I got together recently, and she said uh, she sees in uh, o- Obama a uh, ability like Bill Clinton to really take in a lot of information, even from different points of view. And yet she saw in him a kind of decisiveness 
that's praiseworthy in a president and that was more uh, characteristic of George W. Bush than it was of Bill Clinton. So that's an interesting model and an interesting mix, I think. Um, I would say uh, as a cautionary note uh, to his fans and his foes uh, that there's, there's polling out this week um, showing that about 87% of Americans are concerned, either somewhat or very, about the budget deficit. So there's something about the, uh, the Obama uh, uh, agenda, which will add to that deficit, which is appealing and certainly benefits from his overall personal popularity. But I think that kind of issue set could be a um, uh, could be a, uh, an Achilles heel as he goes forward. You know, I've, I've um, commented often about message discipline. It was a phrase, a term of art, if you will, in the Bush world, uh, probably carried to an extreme, like. Uh, uh, lots of practices are in politics. Um, I noted today um, that our vice president uh, indicated uh, uh, that Americans shouldn't gather in one room, so let's all depart the premises. Um, that it would be wise not to travel. Uh, I'm sorry, I took a plane up here, um, Mr. Vice President. Um, and, and um, you know, he, he got off the reservation. So I, I asked in the little write-up that I sent to, uh, to Gene beforehand whether message discipline was a good thing, whether message discipline was a necessary thing. What is it? It's kind of a consistency. It's, it's uh, you know, carried to a fault. It is sort of slavish consistency. But this is a little case study. Joe Biden says today these things about the flu virus, swine flu, the H1N1, I believe we're all encouraged to call it, and he gets off the reservation, and what happens? The media run there with him, maybe led by right-leaning outlets, but nonetheless, it was a distraction. I imagine that in the blogosphere today, and even in that old world evening newscast tonight, and in discussions that we'll all have uh, over the next day or two, because the swine flu virus is a pretty hot topic out there, much hotter than politics, or Joe Biden for that matter, let's face it. Uh, there would be a, a, a little discussion. What was Joe saying? What, what do you mean by that? That is a distraction. That doesn't help uh, President Obama pass, uh, uh, you know, push forward his agenda. I'd argue that it suggests that some, there is some role for a kind of uh, discipline in how uh, our elected officials uh, communicate. Um, look, uh, even the most rabid anti-Bush uh, Democrat must wish for a little more restraint. Uh, from the new vice president. And so his candor, um, well, the news cycle will extract a price for it. Um, I'd like on that note to turn to something uh, that, Henry, you've written about, you've studied, uh, you've quoted others talking about the moral economy of information. I've gone through message discipline and, you know, tough campaigns and uh, uh, the ups and downs of the political cycle, the absurdities of the recount, uh, skimming across the surface of a career where, uh, you know, the hard-fought political battles have brought uh, uh, a lot of heat and every once in a while a little light. Uh, so I try to shed a little more light. And I, I saw a window for that, uh, carrying, beating this metaphor to death, um, in, in the phrase, the moral economy of information. And I might, for the purposes of this talk, ask you to consider a moral economy of political information and what that might uh, actually entail. As I reflected on that, I, I, and it says more about my sort of 
character or, or outlook on life than it does maybe my studies of this stuff. Uh, but I actually believe in a kind of fundamental fairness in our moral economy, in our economy of political information, in our political back and forth. Now, I wouldn't call that a transactional fairness. I wouldn't say that cause plus effect equals fair result within sort of a, some sort of hard to define time frame. But in the course of a political life, in the course of a political campaign, there is a context, a contextual fairness that you know, someone who believes in sort of just being realistic about the world might be able to appreciate. What do I mean by that? Contextual fairness. I think office holders and maybe the senior people who work around the candidates who run for office have a, uh, uh, a make a bargain. The bargain is that we're going to get into this business knowing more or less what the rules are. And those rules include the fact that it is pretty tough. It's brutal, in fact. And in a transactional sense, in even a very clear, easy to decide sense, it's not fair. I think that's true regardless of one's ideology. It's not fair the way some people are treated in politics. I've argued that uh, you know, the toughness of these campaigns is uh, to quote Broder and Kramer and some others, a pretty, you know, it's a, it's a decent test for the toughness of being president of America in these times when it is a, an incredibly tough job with the, the demands on the person who holds that office are crushing. They are. So we better test their ability to take, a, take, take blows. And I, I you know, so, so I think you know that going in. So there's this fundamental fairness, which I hadn't really defined yet, that's, that's, that is within context, a contextual fairness, where you know that certain strengths, you the candidate, let's say, know that certain strengths of yours will be rewarded. Some of them even disproportionate to, the, to, to their value. And your weaknesses will be punished sometimes perhaps disproportionate to uh, their actual role in your character and makeup. All of this within the framework you the candidate, you the political activist, you the campaign have to go through. You and your agenda are going to be judged by a set of very tough standards, often changing I suppose, but by an electorate that's as fair as their level of information and their set of values will allow them to make. Uh, as, as fair as it, it, it makes them. Okay, so uh, I would say that my, I, I don't think I'm Pollyanna, my belief in the, the fairness of, um, of politics, the, the fair results, um, doesn't mean that I, I welcome uh, some of the dialogue that we have. If you would, uh, you all remember this bumper sticker, and I suppose Henry has either written or thought about the way uh, the idea here has spread, and even the bumper sticker. Uh, George Bush started in 2000 holding up three fingers uh, as, a, as a sort of a, a look-alike for a W. We all thought it was, you know, kind of humorous. I don't, I, don't, I don't quite sure where it came from. And, of course, the way our politics is and the way his persona generated opposite reactions. A lot of people thought, you know, he's holding up a three, you know, three and trying to say that's a W and, you know, how... How crazy is that? But it, it, it stuck. 
you know, his nickname to a lot of people was just W. And um, fine. So if you'll pardon the, the crassness of it, as a parent, as a conservative, as someone who is worried about our, uh, our, our, our sort of public discourse, I didn't much care for that. I, it gets a laugh in this room, and I suppose I, that's fine. Um, I would say that context, and I, I use this in a different maybe sense than I meant it a few minutes ago, but in context, seeing that on a bumper in public uh, gives it a much lower, lower value. I, I certainly uh, appreciate free speech and wouldn't seek to govern that. I, I, I'm always struck by how angry someone must be to put that kind of thing on, on uh, you know, a bumper they drive around town. But so, I, you know, my opinion, crude. Uh, the next one is crude, and yet I'll admit I find it funny because of the context. I got it as an email. I would not like to see this on a bumper sticker, even though I found it funny as an email. Um, I've just returned from France, so for the podcast, I will say these have said W the president, F the president, and Omerd. Um, <laughs> So if you just move along, we don't need to leave that hanging up there. I put the, the title slide back in just to make a point sort of about how spreadable that, uh, that uh, iconic sort of idea of one letter and, and uh, its reference to the president. The, the, the version I actually saw in email, Henry, uh, of O. Merd was... Um, I thought a little bit better than the one I found uh, in Google Images because it, was, it played off of the actual Obama logo. It had those colors, that sort of pale blue and red. And I'm a parts, and I thought, oh, that's funny. <laughs> and I got it in email. Uh, I'd make the case that context and setting in this gift economy of sharing uh, uh, emails with one another, where you see it does uh, make a difference. So, uh, you know, a tough tough place. Is it fair that someone's name is poked around like that? Uh, probably not, but it is part of the culture and the world uh, we, uh, we live in. And I think uh, I'll leave that at, at, at that for now. This um, sense of fairness, fundamental fairness even, uh, for me was tested in a very personal way uh, that I'll get to uh, in a moment. But as, as some of you may know from my political bio, so I was this Bush guy. I'm going to get in a little while to talking a, a, a fair amount about my experience in 2008 when I went to work with, at John McCain's request with Sarah Palin. But as some of you know, I opposed John McCain nine years ago. I fought against him. It's a hard-fought campaign in South Carolina. About 16 months ago, I complained uh, about the McCain campaign and the way it seemed to be wallowing in its defeat from then eight years earlier. Um, there was a kind of misleading self-pity when it came to that campaign. Um, but I also disavowed uh, in an interview uh, you know, uh, some of the attacks that they had to endure. I want to get into this for a minute because it really touched, touched uh, me and my family personally. And Henry, I have not said a word about this uh, since the campaign, since all of this came up. So it's, um, it is for the first time. And so I'll, I'll, I may uh, 
jump around a little bit, but I'd ask you to bear with me because I think it's relevant to our overall discussion. I'd like in a moment to uh, have you look at a, a clip. It's up on YouTube. It was an interview that I did, as I said, about 16 months ago uh, with um, Stephen Forbes, the director of the movie about Lee Atwater, Boogeyman. And there had been a, uh, uh, a speech. Uh, McCain was campaigning in my home state, South Carolina, and he fell prey to that sort of self-pity about that uh, election, in my view. And I was at the time not supporting any of the candidates. I wasn't very inspired by any of my Republican Party uh, potential nominees. But I didn't like the way that campaign um, was sort of reliving an incident, an incident that happened uh, eight years earlier. I'll explain some more after this uh, clip of me uh, talking to Stephen Forbes about um, go, yeah, go ahead. Uh, <laughs> talking about tough campaigns, and the, the McCain campaign in 2000 got distracted. They uh, heard some crazy rumor uh, that some one person may have spread something uh, uh, intended to hurt the family because they'd adopted a black baby. That's a wonderful story. It's a wonderful pro-life story. Who would have voted against John McCain because of that? maybe a few hundred people in a state of 3.6 million. It's an insult to South Carolina or to any state when you say that one narrow, negative, off-the-wall thing defeated a candidate. The South has got a complicated history on race. The South has got the same thing. America's got a complicated history on race. It is unfair to suggest that a state like South Carolina is a bunch of rubes because of our past. It is certainly fair to pick out a few rubes and hold them up for what they are, a few rubes and nothing more. So I, I, you see I got a little my dander up, we'd say, in South Carolina. He's picking on my whole state for a bunch of, of, of a few yahoos. Well, I, I bring all that up to, to um, set the stage for uh, this personal thing I keep talking about. Um, so if, if I can, I'll fast forward to last summer and spring, summer. Uh, McCain gets the nomination, and I, you know, I, he's earned it. I'm a Republican. I'm a loyal party guy. I want to find a way to help John McCain get elected president and, uh, and beat whoever the Democratic nominee is. By then, we, we knew it was going to be... Obama. And so, uh, you know, I thought that he had earned my support. He deserved it. Uh, you know, he's a, a war hero, and I, I wanted to help. Uh, I wasn't real specific, so I was a little surprised to be called, uh, as an exchange of emails actually, on the day that Sarah Palin was named the new vice presidential nominee in waiting for the Republican Party. I was um, uh, doing an interview that morning on NPR. At which they wanted to re-record for the West Coast and update it to include the rumor that Sarah Palin might be the person. So I'm backing up to the morning before she was named. And uh, I did a lousy job on the radio of defending the pick. I hadn't really studied her. I'd thought a little bit about her. I knew who she was and followed her a tiny bit, and it showed, tiny bit. I did, I did a poor job. So I spent about an hour online and, and, and sort of figured out um, what I thought they ought to be saying. And Henry, uh, you and your colleagues have had a number of interesting things that I largely agree with to say about 
what I'll call communicators, people in the business of conveying me political messages, consumer messages, and all of that, and the desire of some of them to retain control over those messages, their dissemination, their form, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I hope I will come back to that. Um, but in this moment, I will say I was one of those people trying to define, not so much control, but at least just have some thing to put forward about this woman if she's going to be the nominee. So this research uh, uh, I do, and I'm uh, a sucker for mnemonic devices, so I wrote a friend at the McCain campaign and said, you need to be talking about her for her executive experience and her energy reform uh, and her uh, um, executive experience, energy. Uh, she worked on energy, and um, holy smokes, y'all, I'm blanking out. That's terrible. Uh, this is part of my pattern, my rap, my story. Uh, three E's. Um, so I should have written them down. Um, and I, I'll come back to what the third one is. It'll come to me, I promise you. And it's not actually relevant to the story, other than having a message that had three E's, memorable, mnemonic device. Uh, and, uh, and, and so I sent this off to the campaign, and they said, yeah, hey, right. Have you got 62 days you could give us? <laughs> so yeah, it was that day, the day she was named, that I was asked uh, to join the campaign. Uh, I think... Uh, emblematic of a campaign that didn't really plan ahead too much. <laughs> I didn't really grasp that at the time, but um, uh, it, it came back to me many, many uh, disorganized days uh, of that, of that camp, next 62 long days, uh, with many highs. Uh, I'd like to reflect on a couple of those and a few, a few lows now and then. Um, so uh, I got into it. And, uh, you know, let, let me just take a minute on her. There's always, I think she's an object of fascination and, and uh, pro and con and uh, probably a little more con than it was right after the election. I don't think things have gone uh, really uh, well for her since then. Uh, but look, this is, uh, I'd say, in her uh, favor, a genuine conservative and a genuine person who is likable for that down-to-earth quality that I got right away. I mean, you see it in person, and I think the life that sh she had been living, the family story, uh, reflected a kind of realness that was very appealing. And many, uh, I know this anecdotally and from data, many Democrats and swing voting, independent women in particular, were very open to this uh, in, in its earliest stages. And, you know, it wasn't long before the hammer came down, right? And, you know, that we had a sense on the inside that, you know, how dare we do this, the media was saying to us. How dare you do this? You spring this surprise on us. Now we're going to have to crush her like a bug. And, you know, it, they sort of did. Um, but, and some of it, hey, I believe in a fundamental fairness, right? So is that fair? Well, in maybe a transactional sense, did she deserve it? No. Was it fair? Well, it's kind of what you get what you know you're getting into if you thought about what you're getting into. So uh, uh, I, I continue a couple of more positives. You know, an amazing speaker. Oh, my gosh. And that speech was for many Republicans who, who would like to just block out the bad stuff, would like to just sort of dwell in a pool of memories about that speech and the excitement it generated and the buzz and the, the, just the way it took this 
guy and made him fresh and updated him, meaning John McCain, and, and gave our party a new face, you know, and a, a, new, a new possibility, you know. I mean, it was just, it was a moment of political spring when all was new in the air and flowers bloomed and, and the crowd roared. And, uh, you know, it, it, uh, it, it, it kept roaring for a long time, all the way to the end. She drew great crowds, but I noticed, you know, come October or so, late September, the crowds were responding to different parts of the speech. And it was, we started just attracting our base voter. And we weren't getting swing voters and as many independent women in the audience. You sort of sense that. And certainly the economic collapse was a moment in time when whammo, uh, you know, we uh, uh, have the economic collapse. Whammo, we have uh, the McCain uh, peripatetic, uh, you know, move on, on going back to Washington, relaunching the campaign, et cetera. Whammo, uh, we had uh, some ill-organized uh, meetings with foreign leaders, with uh, Governor Palin in, uh, in New York. You know, whammo, whammo. I mean, it was, we took... Uh, a serious uh, pounding at that time, and um, and you know we 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 suffered from it for for a long time because it was right in that era that the infamous, the ever infamous uh, uh, interviews happened, most especially the Katie Couric interview. And if any of you want to dwell on that later, I, I'd be be happy to answer any questions you have about it. I think uh, you know it was um, you know reflection of a, a campaign that. Uh, had taken someone uh, out of Alaska and into the national political context so abruptly uh, that uh, you know it just we were gonna it was gonna show at some point. I do remind people that the first major national interview she did with Charlie Gibson nobody really talks about anymore because it was actually a success. It was fine. It was good. It uh, it, it drew a little controversy right away about something. She said, but the controversy was generated by Charlie Gibson and ABC News's mistake, not by a Sarah Palin mistake. It may be one of the reasons the media don't talk about it as much. I mean, they do have a tribal tendency to protect their own sometimes um, uh, if you're part of the club. And so I, I thought uh, Gibson came across, uh, and I don't think he is personally, but he came across to many viewers as condescending in that interview. Uh, you know, I don't think you could necessarily say that about Katie Couric. I, I don't think she had a lot of gotcha questions. She had one. Uh, she asked Sarah Palin what reform measures John McCain had ever voted for that would regulate business as opposed to deregulate it. This was right as the financial collapse happened. And that's a gotcha. That's kind of a cheap shot question. I don't think you'd expect uh, um, someone to know that and then and then really burn them with the, the fact they didn't know it and she kind of did burn us but really that wasn't that wasn't what created the indelible impressions of the Katie uh, Couric interviews what did well the reality you know some answers the, the non-answer on what do you read and the uh, answers on um, health care and the economy that were choppy and then which were you know so ruthlessly uh, mocked by Tina Fey and um, you know, I'd be very interested in everyone's take on on that whole moment in time politically, and and its timelessness. Actually, I think it's it's a you know it's I don't know if the word's iconic, but it's created a a, a more or less kind of permanent uh, 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 image that uh, uh, is 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 probably indelible. So, uh, real real quickly, if I may, uh, Saturday Night Live. Um, 
you know, we get into mid-October. Uh, they'd been pursuing us for some time. There was concern that uh, she'd be embarrassed or that they'd make fun of her or be, you know, rude to her in person. And, you know, that's, I think that's a legitimate personal kind of concern. And Lauren Michaels, uh, speaking to me that week, went out of his way to assure us that that would not be the case. And he's a man of his word. And the place, I think, thrives on having people like her. The ratings certainly benefited enormously. And the, the, the viewability and spreadability of those, some of those moments is uh, uh, unequaled, I think, in, in uh, political uh, pop culture. But... Um, uh, so we ended up going, I'll, I'll note, uh, I think it's relevant, that one of the reasons that she and, and, and Todd were so hesitant was the, um, uh, the, a sketch they'd run a week or two before about the newsroom of the New York Times in which um, it was suggested that the husband, Todd, had committed incest with his own daughter. Now, uh, that's disgusting, you know, and I think you, you don't have to... Um, uh, you can have a New York uh, comedic sensibility and still just kind of be disgusted by that. And yet, what's really interesting about that sketch is that it was poking, it, its whole purpose was to poke fun at those liberals at the New York Times. It was a counterintuitive, unexpected moment. It's so counterintuitive that it didn't fit into the narrative that we in politics talk about a lot, and so it doesn't get much attention or thought about today. But it was a counterintuitive and funny, funnier probably to conservatives than liberals, but sometimes funny comes out of being surprising. Context is you don't expect SNL to make fun of the New York, uh, of the New York Times and liberals in, in journalism. Just as, um, you know, you wouldn't expect uh, Saturday Night Live necessarily to really poke ruthless fun at the Democrat back in 1988. But I'm going to fast forward and say one of my favorite moments backstage was just talking with Jim Downey, a writer for Saturday Night Live who had written many of the classic political sketches, some of which had been very counterintuitive, sometimes seemed conservative. And he's a fascinating guy. He'd be an uncle to Robert Downey Jr., which I didn't know until I did a little research on him after the fact. Uh, so we get to Saturday Night Live with one sketch drafted and in our hands that was about um, uh, 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 Sarah Palin as a bedazzler in Alaska who was selling her goods on the Susie Orman show. <laughs> and the, the laughs I just got right there were greater than all the laughs that sketch really uh, created among the <laughs> staff of the Palin campaign. It was, it was a dud to us. It just wasn't funny. We rejected the script. It put her in the role of an actor acting something, and uh, we weren't really sure that that's what we wanted to do, and she wasn't, and uh, uh, it wasn't funny, most of all. So then we got the opening sketch, the cold open, they call it, the Baldwin, Lauren Michaels thing, many of you have seen. It was pretty funny. It needed some work, and we were, they were good about working with us on it. Um, and then when we got there, They'd been teasing us. They said, we've got this sketch. We think it's really funny. We really do like it. Uh, but it needs a little work. So they finally, Seth Meyers, Lauren Michaels, and Amy Poehler walk into her dressing room and hand us the sketch for the weekend update. The rap, you know, the Amy Poehler rap, which, of course, she was never, she, Sarah Palin, was never going to do. But the conceit of the sketch was 
that she decided at the last second, I'm not going to do this rap. It just doesn't feel right to me. That was the conceit. But Amy Poehler, <laughs> amazing. I saw her do that like eight times that day. And she busted it every time. I mean, busted, I you know, it's a, I ought to use the word advisedly. She was like nine and a half months pregnant. And she's up there jumping around, swinging and swaying. And uh, very impressive. So uh, I'm, I'm, I'm right next to the Weekend Update desk. And they've just done maybe the second run-through of it. And one of the directors of the show is right there, Irishman, acted like he'd known me his whole life, looked up, he said, Tucker, I've been here 16 years. This might just be the strangest show ever. <laughs> I said, what? Come on, I've read the books. There's no way. Get out of here. He said, no, really, look. He said, over there, and he pointed at our Secret Service detail. He said, there are 14 handguns. And he pointed at one of his staffers, and he said, and all of my staff have got knives on them. About half of them are holding weed, and two moose just got shot, and they're Eskimos rapping. <laughs> I said, okay, yeah. Yeah, I think you got me there. This might be the strangest show ever. The... Uh, the experience was a, a happy one in, in many ways. In fact, some of my colleagues who joined us just before showtime and had been away, I'd been away from for half the day or so, who, but who'd been sort of slogging it out for me for, with me for six weeks, they walked in and they didn't recognize me. They said, Tucker, you're smiling. I'll give you a sense of just how, <laughs> how hard a road it had been for a while. So... Uh, that, that was a, uh, a moment that uh, its, um, its, its convergence and its, um, its, its spreadability is, is perhaps something you'd like to talk about as I wrap things up. But I do want to tell my personal tale. So if we could go to this next slide. I'm going to backtrack and say that when it got out that I was joining the campaign, the first, well, the first news was at politico.com. The second hit was Jake Tapper. Uh, Jake had covered uh, me and Bush and the whole campaign back in 2000, and he wrote this piece. Um, you see the, the date, September 1st, uh, and so he's, he's setting a tone right there. Hires GOP operative who helped smear him in South Carolina in 2000. Now, I think political coverage gives you a license to uh, use all sorts of words, and so smear... I, I'd like to complain about it as a purist about the language. I don't believe I ever smeared John McCain. I certainly, you could say, attacked him, criticized him. You know, this tendency toward really inflammatory and sort of turning up the heat on words. Uh, journalists complain about it in politicians, and politicians and their operatives complain about it in journalists. So I'd smeared John McCain. That, that uh, article, if you looked it up, would, at its worst, you know, point out that uh, there had been some push polls in 2000 that I had defended. Push polls that uh, claimed that John McCain, claimed accurately that John McCain had been part of the Keating Five uh, SNL scandal and debacle. I, in 2000, defended that poll and said there's not a question in there that isn't based on the truth. All right, so that's what that story kind of gets into. And it has a couple of people saying nice things about me and a couple of unnamed people saying, you know, mean things about me. And, you know, I didn't like it, but that's fine. And then, if, if you will, it begat some other things. This was much later, so I'll jump a little bit out of time. McCain actually went out and hired Tucker Eskew, one of the architects of Rove Smear, there's that word again, campaign in South Carolina back in 2000. 
Now get this, a man who McCain once had said had a special place in hell awaiting him in the next world. Forgive my punctuation there. So, I, you know, I have to fill in a couple of blanks here. John McCain did use the phrase special place in hell, and he was referring to someone who, who, who uh, ostensibly a Bush supporter who had sent an email that was about his adopted daughter. This is what I was commenting on like 16 months earlier. And, and I think criticizing, certainly not in any way defending. Uh, and so the public record has you know, a special place in hell, then it has smear. Uh, you know, I've been asked sometime back about the daughter, the Bengali daughter who'd been adopted. Um, and so what happened in all this? It was almost, I'm sorry, viral. It did, in fact, was viral because your criticism of that word is that it suggests change and, you know, mutation and all of that. At least that's part of how I read it. And this whole thing was getting sort of virus, and I was starting to feel a little ill. Uh, if you would, please. Um, and I, I'm a note, you've, I think, written about Farid Manju. He's written a piece called uh, Truth Enough. It's sort of spun off of Stephen Colbert's concept of truthiness. And it's written from a pretty uh, left-leaning perspective. And in flipping through it, I noted, uh, and you'll call this foreshadowing if you see the storyline moving along, uh, he refers to a columnist at the New York Times, Frank Rich, as a hard-working beat cop against the official sanctioning of lies. Well, I'm going to take exception with Mr. Manju, if you would. Because Frank Rich, on October 11th, 2009, 2008, that's a mistyping uh, there, we also learned then, this was uh, you know, a month before the election, that the McCain campaign had recruited as a Palin handler, none other than Tucker Eskew, the South Carolina consultant who had worked for George W. Bush in the notorious 2000 GOP primary battle where the McCains and their adopted Bangladeshi daughter were slimed by vicious racist rumors. So what gone from sort of smear to, you know, rumor mongers and, and all of that was now a, a really clear implication that I had some hand, that the campaign in some way had a hand in smearing John McCain's uh, adopted daughter, who I had the pleasure of meeting on the campaign trail before this column hit. But when that column hit, I, the political code is, I want to draw attention to myself. I didn't want to, you know, verbally, not literally, punch uh, uh, Frank Rich for this because that would just be counterproductive. Uh, we're all about the campaign and all this. But I wanted to know if John McCain ha was concerned about this. I certainly thought not. I'd been hired by the man, been asked to join his campaign. And yet that's now being turned sort of against McCain by writers who see it as some act of craven you know, giving in to those, the evil Bush, Karl Rove, South Carolina negative attack thing that's going after their guy, Barack, okay? Slimed by vicious racist rumors. I don't know what's more vicious than insinuation that someone was involved in that kind of race baiting attack without any evidence of proof, if you would. Uh, and we can back up, because I'm not, I'll, I'll touch on that if I need to. So I, I'm here to tell you that um, the, uh, 
the mutation of, of, of the coverage of that South Carolina primary uh, and its um, distortion by Frank Rich, uh, which was then picked up by countless blogs. So uh, it, it, it's probably countable. Uh, it's some finite number, but it's beyond my ability, my search uh, capabilities, and perhaps Google's to really know the total number, not to mention the relevance. I'll, I'll, I'll be the first to grant that even Frank Rich is saying this, and then even a bunch of liberal blogs repeating it, and even Don Imus is going on to call me a, a, you know, some really awful names. Who? Don Amos was. Yeah, yeah, right, Amos. Yeah, no, I heard about it. I never heard them, and I couldn't find online evidence. But I, I had people calling me and emailing me that day. Um, and uh, I said, oh, people still listen to him? No, sorry, I got personal there. Um, uh, so well, I, I, don't, I bring all of that up, I, I think, to try to, at first, I think I'm, as a practitioner, of communications finally doing something that I would have advised a client to do much earlier, which is to respond somehow. So I'm starting a response. I will probably now, and I really didn't start thinking about this till I got into thinking about what I'd say to all of you and reading a lot of your blog and, and reading Convergence Culture and, and, and all of that. And I, I felt like yeah, I owe it to myself and I owe it to my, the advice I give clients and, and friends about how to do these sorts of things. So there'll be a podcast of this uh, uh, remarks, and maybe someone in Wikipedia will cite that podcast someday, or maybe I'll point it out to a political reporter who'd be willing to hear a little bit more of this story, who would then uh, be picked up by a blog interested in these kinds of things, and maybe I'll begin to scratch the surface of the depth of the spreadability of that uh, assertion there which, as you can tell, I take great exception to. So um, that's, that's that. I, I had other observations to make about uh, uh, spreadability versus stickiness, if, uh, um, if you ever want. I, just for a second, if you would. You know, this is a book that practitioners, uh, I would like to kind of come back to that whole subject of controlling message versus letting it, a thousand flowers bloom. These guys, uh, Heath, one of them I think is an academic, they're two brothers, but they've written a formula, and people in my business love formulas, that is uh, simple, unexpected, concrete, credible, emotional stories. I think if you click, 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 um, uh, you know, is a way, there's one more, yeah, um, is a way to uh, get things to stick. Now, they don't mean stick in a way that's the opposite of spreadability. In fact, they, they mean it, I think, largely in some of the definition that you use. So that it, 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 it lasts. <laughs> Last, uh, lastingness comes from spreadability. I guess it has to stick to something and then spread. Maybe that would be their explanation. Um, and just real briefly, that McCain campaign had elements, if you would. Um, is that what it does? Uh, is there not? I think you went backwards. Yeah. So uh, was there anything in that McCain campaign that fit that model? I actually thought Joe the Plumber worked. And people are sick of Joe the Plumber. But you're thinking, you're thinking in April 2009, man. Go back to debate night you know, in October uh, when uh, I'm watching with uh, you know, the Palin crew somewhere far away from where it happened. And I'd been saying in the day or two, there was a, it was a day or two after Joe the Plumber came on the scene that this 
God, it was not planned. I'm part of a business where we try to set these things up to happen, you know? We, we try to manufacture our spontaneity. Well, my golly, this was actually spontaneous. Joe the plumber confronted Barack Obama was Obama was doing sort of a door-to-door -door thing around Toledo. So it was, uh, but it was simple. This guy had an economic concern about Obama raising taxes, and he's a plumber, so it was unexpected. Republican, plumber, good Lord, it was credible at first because of he was the guy. He embodied it. So credible and concrete, the other C, they go together. It was emotional. He, got, he was angry. He was, he was fired up and ready to go, to borrow a phrase. And it was, uh, uh, it was um, simple. It was easy to remember. So I was one of those encouraging us to sort of hammer that. I didn't know we'd hammer it maybe quite as much as we did. But this is a campaign that didn't hammer and stick with much. So once you did, it sort of stood out as being rather remarkable. And we also had our friend Tito the Builder, but I won't go there. Uh, and, and so I also note in talking to people that it soon became expected because we did it so often, and it lost some credibility as, as his personal story unraveled a little bit under the brutal glare of uh, Ohio State government, local officials, and uh, much of the mainstream national media. I, you know, that, that's sort of a, a tail stuck uh, with a pin on the end of this donkey here, or elephant, if you will, uh, but maybe sets up an opportunity for us to uh, launch into any questions you might have, and, and uh, uh, thank you all for your time and attention. All right. Mike, for people who want to ask questions. Who is Tito the Builder? <laughs> I wondered whether um, to comment on. Uh, I wondered if you could comment on the Caroline Kennedy situation because she spoke so much tonight about getting beat, you know, in the kind of fairness and the glare of the media and all of that. And um, you know, I just that was obviously an important sort of media moment for a lot of people. Absolutely, that's a good question. Um, and I just wonder if you. Could Sure. Um, has she said anything recently? I hadn't seen her. Okay. So this was. How did she? So how was that similar to or different from teen, uh, from Sarah Palin? <laughs> I've done that before. That's all. Yeah. Just you know, I mean, as a uh, as a consultant, and you know, as as someone that you know would be looking in. Yep. Um, and knowing what you know about the industry and how it works, and and that you spoke about that brutality, of that, of, of getting into that space. Yeah. yeah. And I think that that was really what for all of her knowledge of how that environment works, I think that she was caught off guard mm -hmm. by how strong it would be. And um, yeah. you know, just wondered if you had any... I, 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 just a few quick comments. I would agree. Uh, and by the way, when it comes to brutality, inside the U.S., there's nothing quite like the New York press corps. I mean, it is. That's a tough bunch of customers. And it's one of those places where there still is kind of a press corps, which is sort of an uh, outdated term. They will move as a pack. And they will, you know, sometimes New York Post and New York Daily News take different tacks, but somehow still stay within that pack. Um, and I think, you know, her, she was sort of a flip, si a flip side of the coin of the, the Palin experience as an uh, untested, uh, exciting, uh, attractive, um, intelligent. Both of these are intelligent women. They've got different ways of, of uh, uh, evincing that. Caroline Kennedy's you know, obviously got a lot to offer, but was she ready for that? 
it's the same question that's been asked about uh, Sarah Palin. Sarah Palin had been governor, executive, energy, <laughs> come on, man. Um, and, uh, uh, and yet, I, I think um, she needed to know what she was getting into. And uh, so the fairness requires, if it's going to be fair, it's got to be because you know or have the ability to know what it is you're getting into. And she'd certainly been around that scene long enough to know something of just how intense it would be. And you could argue that I've just been talking about Sarah Palin or Caroline Kennedy. I want to pick up on the uh, disclosure you made tonight about the spreadability of the, the 2000 uh, McCain yeah. treatment. And how did that play out with your colleagues? Was that, did you get a clue there that there were very distinct currents within your colleagues and the party? Did that, did that, obviously it stuck some places better than others. Yeah. Some people probably were not as friendly towards you afterwards and others yep. didn't notice. I mean, did that, does yeah. that line up with what we're seeing today? Well, it, here, here's, here's what I'd say about that. First of all, that first story, that Jake Tapper piece, was a reminder that there were people who didn't want to be named within McCain world, however you define that, people who had been with him in 2000, let's say, uh, who really just didn't like having all these bushies around. I always thought all that was a little funny, but expected, fair <laughs> in that sense. The, the whole thing about bushies, well, I mean, you've been running the party for eight years. You know, you could call me a, a Reaganaut for having worked for Ronald Reagan, but that wouldn't be as relevant or as timely. So you get put in the bush basket, fine, fair. But, you know, what, it, what, what a campaign like McCain's does is it gets through the primaries roughly winning about a third of the vote on its way to getting that nomination, and it needs not only to staff up but to build out, not only to add to staff, but to show people that it's now encompassing the party. So you're going to bring people on who'd work for other candidates and former presidents. And unfortunate for McCain, even former presidents who are at 29% approval and whose name is like the red letter A stamped on your, your dress if you're Hester Prynne. I mean, it's, it's, it was a brutal moniker to get attached uh, to, to McCain and, and perhaps inevitable in, in the kind of political climate. So I think uh, my joining and those complaints about me somewhat were a proxy for people, other people's concerns. There were too many people who'd worked for Bush or been around Karl Rove or what have you. But the larger thing is, why did people, any of them, genuinely believe that the Bush campaign or that Tucker Eskew or any of these people had actually in any sense brought a candidate's daughter into a campaign. Why would you think that? I mean, there's a kind of self-pity or sort of f almost flagellation or something in the psychology of that that I found, you saw in that clip from a year and a half ago, just hard to fathom. And even in kind of base practical terms, uh, common practical terms, not politically helpful. What good would it do to, be a, to, to do that or to be associated with it? And to do it means ultimately you're going to be associated with it. The, the culture of, you know, the irony here is that if you'd done it, it really would have been divulged and you didn't do it and so you get attached to it. That's, um, 
I don't know if it's fair. I like to think there's a fundamental fairness. So what will I do to try to complete that equation and make it fair for me and my family, my wife, who really was the one most affected by uh, some of this stuff? It's just to create a record, do the best you can, get it into the mix a little bit without drawing too much attention to it. I wanted to get your perspective on the Earl Inspector announcement this week. Both yeah. the substance of his criticism and where the party's at, but then also the degree to which that announcement not unpredictably got labeled opportunistic in the ways in which it was presented. So there's been a kind of interesting struggle over messaging around that. Indeed. Indeed. And I would have been, even if, if you hadn't said the second part of that, I would say, well, first, consider the source. I mean, Spectre has been for many Republicans, not just hardcore, very conservatives, but just sort of mainstream conservatives, a problematic figure for years. And sort of we've had struggles over whether to uh, uh, have the party support him, have the president endorse him, have the apparatus and the money go to him. And in the past, it's we've sort of finally decided, okay, well, Arlen's, he's, he's, he's our Arlen, and we're going to, well, he's not our Arlen anymore. And the one bit of sort of schadenfreude you hear out there is Republicans saying he's now the Democrats' problem, you know? And we haven't got much to be happy about here, but we'll take what we can get. Um, and I suppose I subscribe to a little of that. Uh, but I, I like to think what I do as a, a strategist or a communicator is step back and say, what does it really uh, mean? All right, short term, practically, it means we have one fewer senator in a closely, uh, you know, in a Senate that is now really in Obama's effective control. Um, shrinkage is not what my party should be looking for or celebrating. <laughs> we have to be uh, more flexible and expansive in our definition of what it means to be a Republican uh, than some would have it be uh, set at. Uh, what do I mean by that? Well, I, I don't mean we should just suddenly decide we got this big tent. It's a bit of an outdated phrase, um, you know, that allows anyone and everyone to roam freely across the plains of the party, how underpopulated they may be. Uh, it, it does mean that if we're going to win in the Northeast and in the North Central Plains and on the West Coast, we've got to find some new ideas, some new faces, some new successes. I'm one of those who believes, Henry, those successes and generally the new faces and ideas are not going to come out of Washington no matter what. They're going to come out of states, state office holders, governors. You've heard me say I believe in uh, governors as a, a wellspring for, for, I think, Republican reform and, and generally it's just good, better, better presidents um, and, and national leaders. So. Um, I, I'm, I'm sorry he's gone. Uh, he, it is very opportunistic that he did it, um, and yet that's his right. And we'll see. Um, we'll see what price he pays, if any, uh, among Democratic um, voters. You know, one, speaking of Schadenfreude, well, the Republican senatorial committee has been doing auto calls, robo calls, into Democratic households today and yesterday, with audio tape of George Bush singing Earl Inspector's praises. Um, a bit of ironic counter-programming there, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> don't you think? <laughs> um, I have a question about, we speak about the sort of mass media, but there are obviously different sort of modes of media within that, such as the internet or newspapers or even sort of weekly periodicals. Um, so I was wondering, 
your practical perspective, are there different kinds of messages that stick or spread in different ways? Or Yes, very good question. So when I went to the White House with uh, George W. Bush, my first job was running the Office of Media Affairs. Media Affairs is basically uh, uh, everything outside the White House press corps. And it's largely focused on regional press. Now this is an institution in great decline, right? Mainstream press in general, newspaper reporters more specifically. But eight years ago, there were many of them, and it was a fairly thriving sort of practice of journalism. And it's fair to say it was easier to tell stories to them that were less filtered by the sort of prism of Washington insider, mainstream, White House press corps sensibility. What does that mean? Well, yeah, we got more of our message through in regional uh, newspapers and on certainly on conservative talk radio, which my office was responsible for. And definitely in the direct format in a web 1.0 world of 2000, 2001, of the White House website, which isn't press, but it is an, an outlet. And it was a place where we, I thought, pushed the envelope some uh, in terms of, of content um, that was, uh, um, well, I don't know if you'd call it producerly, uh, to borrow a Jenkinsism, um, but it was, uh, you know, there was some spreadability um, in the uh, Barney uh, videos and such. So uh, we, we, we took different channels from that White House, just to cite one sort of example in my career, to take appropriate advantage of the different ways that these varied audiences would receive our message. So I think the, the White House uh, press corps, and I have friends in the one today, and I had friends in the Bush one, but I will paint with a broad brush and tar them generally to say they are very bright, very cynical, very spoiled <laughs> individuals who are really tough to live with and work with. And so I sidestep many of them <laughs> in my uh, White House career. That's one example. I'm a first-year student along with a bunch of other people here in Henry's class. We've been talking a lot about public sphere lately and the role of deliberation um, in the public sphere and on the internet. And I'm wondering, like to me, it looks like media is getting more niche and and everyone able to talk to their own groups. Right. And where do you think the actual uh, productive deliberation is going on now? And where I mean, maybe it's all productive. What? I'm sorry. Deliberation. Deliberation. Yeah. 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 Let me, let me, I'll try to warm up to that. It's a, it's a fascinating question. Uh, I warm up to it by saying I like the way you put it. I've, I've said that, I've really said it since about 2000, as Fox News came on the scene and talk radio was happening, and we were seeing in our own polls a difficulty just breaking through, um, that, that people kind of go to their own corners, right? There was an academic term in some of your writing for this practice of, of there's a you know just going to find what reinforces what you already believe and and it is uh, you know, much commented on out there and 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 you're wise to study it it is uh, 
it is troubling. We were talking beforehand about the, the civic space and, and uh, the accommodation of different points of view within that space and the assimilation of those different views in a healthy kind of way, which is what I think we should all want our body politic to do. So where is it happening? Well, I, you know, I start with some, some negative news on that front. I see that uh, CNN's ratings are down. CNN has positioned itself as a place where some of that can occur and is a fairly frequent guest on Wolf Blitzer's show over the last four or five months. I'd say that's reasonably fair. You know, they're prone to some of the mainstream leftward drift, uh, drift but uh, le leftward drift. Uh, but, you know, I'm, I'm sorry to see that, um, look, that, um, that documentary about Lee Atwater I mentioned, you know what it's flaw is, and Stephen Forbes even said it. He said it's actually fairly balanced. Stephen's a liberal. Uh, Stephen quotes a lot of people saying a lot of really harsh things about Lee, some of which might be uh, fair, some of which I know are not. And yet I still come away from it feeling like he did a decent job of trying to have some balance into it. Well, guess what? It didn't really spread. You know, that, that thing didn't catch on. It didn't have any kind of you wouldn't necessarily expect it to be sort of Michael Moore-sized, uh, uh, you know, in terms of its audience, not in terms of its director, uh, uh, the, the, you know, in terms of its reach, but, but greater maybe than it had been, than it, than it got. And I think some of that is attributable to the fact that it's sort of balanced. So I, I'm not a, a psychology student, but in politics, you better learn to practice uh, practice it at least as a, a, a as an amateur. Um, and, and so, we we are drawn. This is a lesson of, of fiction and narrative storytelling. And so, you better know it about the news media too. Toward conflict, what would a novel be without conflict? A movie without conflict? It would be a movie you wouldn't watch and a book you wouldn't read. So I've always understood the media to have a role in a bias, if you will, toward conflict. But it's funny, as, it, as it's all gotten atomized, the conflict is, um, is not contained. Let's see if I can get this right, Henry. You know, in, inside, it's, it's not so CBS picking fights with Ronald Reagan, it's, uh, which was sort of the conflict at its height of sort of Reagan-era media coverage. 60 Minutes taking on Ronald Reagan. Now it's sort of, pow, you go out to your corners and you're firing shots all the way over to the other side and back and Maddow and Oberman come back to Riley and O'Reilly and Limbaugh and you know, you've, so you got this, this, if I can take the military metaphor, these shots firing over and there are other people right there in the middle who are just sick of it all. Um, and let's face it, who also, to I don't know, with, with, this is a chicken and egg situation. Those in the middle, both ideologically and sort of uh, just behaviorally, not given to the extremes of this attack, they tend to be people, surveys show, who are least interested in politics, who are most interested in celebrity news. Um, you know, they're not, they're not engaged. And so, we can ask the question, is it this, this fight that makes them such? Or is it the fact that they are that way makes them irrelevant to these really research-driven, audience-focused, 
entities here out on the polls, and if these people aren't going to pay attention, well, okay, we'll go for the things that our audience is paying attention to, and that's fighting with the opposite side. So where does it start and where does it end? I, I hadn't done a good job of answering your question of where effective civic discourse is taking place, but I'll do, I'll, I will try by saying that I didn't really quite complete the thought earlier that Barack Obama's election does give us an opportunity for some reset. Not, I hope, for us to do away with our differences, uh, but to do away with those really uh, personal uh, and out-of-bounds kind of attacks, or at least minimize them somewhat. And I hope that his presence, and yes, his being the first African-American president, let's face it, that has a lot to do uh, with this opportunity and with, in my view, some of the adoration and certainly with some of the joy you know, that Americans and people around the world feel about it. Maybe that's a, a chance um, that I hope Republicans will, um, you know, and Democrats, and, and they're, they're failures on both sides uh, in this, you know, will we'll, uh, um, try to achieve. I hope. Keep trying. Um, hi. I was curious, you mentioned at the beginning of your talk that you wanted to do a sort of defensive partisanship. And I was curious, in light of we were talking about Spectre and this sort of thing, um, if you could, one, define how you think of partisanship more concretely, and also about how well you think part of the current parties map on to competing ideologies. Like, and for some people, you know, Arlen Specter can just switch from one to the other, and I wouldn't say maybe his ideology has changed that much. Right. But how well do you think that the parties reflect ideology and what is partisanship to you? Great. Um, so I think, uh, how do the parties map against ideology? Well, I think currently the Democratic Party, as embodied by, let's say, its elected officials nationally, Congress and the White House, is a you know, left-leaning to centrist party that has elected officials that reflect that spread. And I think the Republican party, you know, with, with, you know, the preponderance being on the left and that the Republican party is uh, losing in the center and then from the sort of center right to the right is heavily weighted. And if you're really weighting things, you'd say we're much lighter than them, right? The, the Democrats have a, have a great uh, significant majority in Congress. Um, I think um, I think Specter, I think Collins and Snow, two senators in Maine, you know, they're, they're, they are or were part of a, you know, dwindling breed of sort of northeastern Republican uh, moderates. Um, I, you know, I, what I hope for is a party that regenerates itself around ideas that involve what I call governing conservatism, where there is the application of principles of smaller uh, but effective government uh, that seeks to solve problems in people's real lives. And I think governors are best equipped to do that. I think at the federal level, executives are. And I think congressmen and senators are there as a check and balance. And they don't really have much accountability of their own, but they're responsible for applying it to others. Look, um, and, and then, any of you follow these tea parties that happen? There's been some coverage <laughs> about this crazy thing. Well, crazy, I mean, I don't know. I, I'm, I, I, I generally believe it's a good thing when, uh, when Americans, left or right, 
get out and sort of voice their opinion and gather. I mean, that's kind of in our roots, right? Right. I'm, we're in Boston, no less. Well, our our uh, that's become quite culture. Yeah. Well, our our you know Drudge certainly brought that home to some of us. Uh, you know, and okay, so tea, tea, but we're in a city where tea parties started, so. Uh, I think I can reflect seriously that that's a good thing to gather in protest of something your government's doing. I would note, however, that uh, I think a fairly sizable number of those people would fit the category of Ron Paul Republicans. And they're not, I don't really, I mean, I guess they're Republican because some of them registered and needed a place to vote, and Ron Paul is there in our party primary and they're vocal, and they're Americans, and they got every right to do all of that, but they're not really, uh, really take part in building and maintaining the party's role in our governance. So they are a little bit on, on the fringe, and I think that applies to some of those tea parties. Tea parties. Um, um, and so, uh, I, I look, I think the party, my party is going through a, a period of reflection, and I hope renewal, but it is shrunk. It is, it is, it, it's ideology, it's sort of span of, uh, of what it encompasses ideologically is, is shrunk uh, in ways that are not useful. And, um, and I say that as a, you know, mo a moderately conservative. Carol Campbell used to say, I like to drive on the right-hand side, the center of the right-hand side of the lane. Not getting too far out, you'll go in the ditch. Not getting too far toward the middle, because you'll get hit by oncoming traffic. You know, it's sort of like, it's conservative, but way out there, it's not too mushy moderate, but it's trying to get down the road. I don't know. Does that answer your question? Is there a specific way to follow up? Uh, yeah, uh, just a little follow-up. That metaphor of the road is interesting, I think, just in terms of the line in between. And you mentioned, you know, saying that like, Democrats are in the middle over to one side, and the other side, and I, you might some exceptions. They don't. Democrats and the Republicans sort of sets up that line in the first place. The idea Fair of enough. going to one side or the other side. Fair enough. And so I would say that I don't know if you have thoughts about how the way in which that we have only Democrats and Republicans kind of sets up the fact that you can say, oh yeah, there's a line, and you go to one side or the other side. Uh huh. Well, well chicken and egg here, yeah. right? I mean. Look, um, I've just been traveling in Europe a little bit, and uh, some of you may have studied the political cultures where you have a truly atomized, you know, political infrastructure. Italy <laughs> would be an example. And there's an utter lack of stability in that uh, atomization. I wonder if the atomization of our sort of opinion climate in the media could have a, a corollary effect here in America. It's a separate question. But the atomization in those other countries, I, I, I've always believed two parties is good for stability. And yet those parties need to be broad enough, strong enough to accommodate some range. Let's face it, though. That range, even as I complain about far-left liberals in this country, with the fringe examples, the outliers set out, if you take 80% of America, the difference from left to right compared to uh, some other political cultures around the world is minuscule. I celebrate that. I mean, I think it is part of our, you know, our, our, our civic space that we can live peacefully together and that we're not so genuinely polarized, atomized, that we have real radical elements. You know, there's a kind of stability 
to that. And so what are the uh, Ron Paul people? They're sort of outliers out there, not in any dangerous sense, but they're outliers beyond uh, some of the norms of that 80%. And, you know, the same could be said of, uh, of some on the left. Um, so are we the way we are because of the structures, or do the structures reflect the country? And I don't, you know, good, good discussion. Rather ha do it over a beer. <laughs> So, so as someone who lived through the 2000 recount, I'm curious your thoughts about what's going on in Minnesota. People sort of argued that the recount in 2000 was as much about rhetoric in terms of legitimizing the two sides as it was about uh, the legal process. Yeah. So you know, what lessons did the two sides learn from 2000 as they've gone into this? Well, the Democrats, Henry, the Democrats will tell you the lesson they learned, you know, is they've got to fight hard. Look, uh, and they are, um, and they fought earlier, and they were more aggressive earlier than I think uh, uh, Coleman's people were, and it says something about our political culture that that's to their benefit, and this, they have the upper hand. Um, look, uh, what happened in 2000, uh, Gore people, and I have uh, some friendships in, in that world over the years, you know, will tell you is they decided... Um, uh, to focus on four counties where they thought they had the best chance of picking up votes. And it was a, a major strategic error because it undermined their whole message of count every vote. So I think they probably learned, you know, a number of lessons there. Fight more aggressively, uh, press your case, have some consistency between your message and your strategy. And they've probably been better at it. I. Uh, I, I, you know, I'm, uh, so I, I'm someone who'd come into this audience and I know how uh, open-minded and broad the comparative media studies program is, and I'd label something that is spread as crude when I'm a conservative or somewhat conservative, and I'll, uh, with a libertarian streak, nonetheless apply my personal judgment about uh, things like that. I think that uh, having Al Franken in the United States Senate is just wrong. It just... You know, I, I, and I'm dismayed by it. And I've been around him, so I know kind of personally what we get with, uh, with him. And I, I'm, I, I'm sorry for it. But uh, he went into the process and knew the rules such as they are or aren't <laughs> and uh, is uh, headed toward apparent victory. I'm you know, not sure of that, but that's how it looks. Listen, I, I, uh, what's been a great privilege for me is not just being here, but spending time thinking about what you do all the time. And I'm just fascinated by it and uh, thoroughly enjoyed diving into it. And I can hope you all consider yourselves as lucky as I think you are. Thank you. <laughs>